Uh, should we just go? Yeah, let's go. Okay, we're going. Hi, I'm Jack. And I'm Noah, and welcome back to another episode of the Climate Vanguard Podcast. This is episode six of the Climate Vanguard Podcast. The podcast series tracks the progress made in setting up Climate Vanguard, a youth-led think tank that illuminates the systemic drivers of climate breakdown and advances the radical climate research needed to arrest the climate crisis. We publish every other Wednesday, and on this week's episode, we have a really exciting conversation lined up. We're going to be discussing our theory of change, a foundational strategy for us at Climate Vanguard, which informs our understanding of how we see our work, our policy outputs actually affecting change in the world. Joining us on this week's episode is another of our Climate Vanguard team members. This week, our team member will not be able to join us in studio, so we're recording this uh, episode over Zoom, but it should be as lively as the last conversation with another guest that we had on. Yeah, so Grace, welcome to the Climate Vanguard podcast. Perhaps you can introduce yourself to all of our listeners. Sure thing. Uh, thank you so much for having me. My name is Grace Brady. I'm a third year sustainable development student at the University of St. Andrews. I have participated in the climate movement since I was about 15 or 16, and it's something that I intend to carry through the rest of my life and stumbled upon Jack and Noah's wonderful project and was so keen to get involved. So I'm over the moon to be on the team and over the moon to be on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe we just jump into first discuss a little bit about your your climate journey. You can just sort of cover any of the sort of key moments or just briefly summarize what it's been like for you, as you mentioned, from being in your mid-teens to now following the climate movement and being part of it. So it definitely started with the Fridays for the Future protests. I went to school in the greater Chicago area. So my friends and I would make our posters to hop on the Metro, ditch school on Fridays and go protest in some of the the main areas around the city it was really empowering to be in large communities of young people doing this kind of like hands-on on on the ground activism but i very quickly became disenchanted with it in a different kind of way because as wonderful as these demonstrations are i was seeing a giant lack of actual change being driven as a result of these protests and as a result of that by the time i got to university I was looking for more ways to make the climate movement accessible. Mm. And as a result, I found the project that is Transition, which is a community-wide initiative to make towns carbon neutral through a diversified range of projects that promote cyclical economical practices, growing your own fruit and veg, connecting with local vendors, and making sure that people are able to just keep their carbon footprints as low as possible through having community structures in place. And as a result, it made me realize all the ways that you can have these individual projects under one umbrella working towards the goal of carbon neutrality. And I found that to be extremely rewarding. And as a result, I found myself running both climate and eco-anxiety campaigns, which are spaces that we facilitate for people to come and share their thoughts on climate change as a whole in the result of climate cafes and then more recently in the last year or so we've specialized in eco-anxiety cafes as projects like force of nature have come out revealing that young people really face these systemic drivers of anxiety exacerbated by the pandemic 
the facts are there. We know that climate change is going to wreak some sort of drastic havoc on the world in our lifetimes. And sometimes it can be really hard to make peace with that. So Eco Anxiety Cafe started up as a way to just give people space to have those uncomfortable and unpleasant conversations where you're not the person making everyone depressed in the corner at a dinner party. (laughs) Here is a specific space to talk about how like sometimes I can't sleep at night because I think about the way that distant water fishing nations are depleting the fisheries of the Gulf of Guinea and everyone there lives off of small-scale fisheries and people are going to starve and it's going to be terrible and you know it's, it's just things like that so I've been so fortunate to connect with a bunch of incredible people who are so passionate about the climate movement, about community initiatives for carbon neutrality, and it's just been a wonderful journey. The Eco Anxiety Cafe is just such important work because the climate emergency, among many other things, is a mental health crisis. And young people especially are constantly bombarded with this terrible news, especially through social media consumption and this internal scrolling that never ends. So I think that's so important. I'm wondering in these eco-anxiety cafes, what has your experience been like talking to people? Have they really opened up? Have they expressed vulnerability? And have you been able to kind of help them develop ways to deal with that and kind of almost channel it in a productive way so that it doesn't overwhelm them and incapacitate them? Of course. So the model that we use for our eco-anxiety cafes that I specifically facilitate are that we start, we have a regimented series of questions that we kind of work through. And it's very like a round table, like we toss it out and people just kind of go around and share as it moves them. And so we start with the really trying to dredge up what is really on your mind related to eco-anxiety. And as people open up about that, something that I hear a lot about is I'm realizing eco-anxiety much like a lot of things related to the climate movement, is such a generational thing. So many people are so vulnerable in sharing the fact that their families don't understand what they're going through. Their parents don't understand. And as a result, there's a lot of patronization that happens from older generations as we deal with and attempt to cope with eco-anxiety. But as we open up the discussion to dredge up those negative feelings we slowly shift it to the positives of what are the things you do to ease your eco anxiety and people share little things they're like when i'm feeling down about it i'll i'll go to a charity shop and i'll get a new article of clothing and i feel good knowing that you know i've saved an article of clothing from the landfill i'm supporting causes greater than my own it's a sustainable way to do a small thing that brings me joy. And you know, what is more powerful than being in a room where everyone is sharing how they cope with these things? Because more than anything, we want to let other people inspire each other to ease their eco-anxiety. And then we switch even more to a wider scale lens of what about the green revolution excites you? And the green revolution is, you know, the climate movement, a lot of the youth climate activism that is taking place. And I do feel like there's a large disconnect between the major climate movements like the Sunrise Movement and sometimes Friday for the Future. So seeing what Climate Vanguard is doing is very exciting because Climate Vanguard itself is now a new contribution to the Green Revolution as we've created this space 
to positively contribute. For sure. I think that that's such an interesting comment about the generational aspect of, of eco-anxiety because we're sort of the first generation that's grown up from a very young age or have grown up with widespread climate information, you know, the understanding, a fuller understanding of the climate crisis more than any other generation before. And I think the impacts and the effects that that carry are still being understood I mean, we're still trying to understand how that really affects people and their understanding of themselves, how they fit into the world, the future that they're inheriting. It's an extremely disempowering feeling. And so I think that that work of helping young people work through that feeling and understand that they can be heard in places because often young people don't feel heard in, in many of the spaces in our society. And from your work, it sounds like the sort of shift from protesting Fridays for Future to engaging in local level work that feels perhaps a little bit more tangible has helped you on a very personal level combat some of that feeling of being disempowered. I completely agree with that. I strongly encourage anybody to look for the grassroots, the bottom-up approaches, just being able to become more involved with your community and know that you're making these positive impacts. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is probably an ideal place to pivot to what Climate Vanguard's theory of change is, because I think Climate Vanguard is at more of a high level area. So we're not necessarily intimately connected at the local level, at the grassroots level. But what we're talking about can easily filter down into that space as well. So perhaps, Jack, you would like to introduce what Climate Vanguard's theory of change is, and then we can all kind of debate and discuss. Sure. So I guess we might talk about our theory of change by breaking it down into sort of three questions. What is it? Why do we pursue that particular avenue of change? And then how do we pursue that particular avenue of change? So I'll start off with answering the first question of what is it? So at Climate Vanguard, our, our theory of change revolves around a paradigm shift. A paradigm, I guess, can be sort of likened to our worldview. So a paradigm shapes our vision of the world around us. It informs our beliefs about the world we live in. And from this perspective, a paradigm is kind of like a pair of goggles through which we see the world. When this pair of goggles is swapped for another pair of goggles, i.e. a paradigm shift, all of a sudden, the ideas and norms which were long held as natural no longer make so much sense, and we can begin to envision change beyond the world that currently exists. So we see this as a very powerful avenue of change, because paradigms actually are the bedrock of many of our systems, of, of the the lives that we live every day. And so catalyzing a paradigm shift really has the power to sort of create change across the board throughout society at system level, the very highest level, which is what's required, but also at local levels like Grace was talking about within communities that can sort of enable people and empower people to see the world in a different way and understand that there are ways forth that can allow us to address the climate and ecological crisis in a very meaningful way. Yeah, and I think it would supplement that just by saying, again, that a paradigm is something that is so naturalized in our everyday life that we're not even aware of it. It's these ideas that just make sense because everyone else believes in them. A useful example would be money. So money doesn't really have any inherent value, just a piece of paper. But it has value because we all believe that it does. These ideas really add up and they end up shaping our physical day-to-day existence. And our current paradigm is composed of a certain set of ideas that really uphold the current system that we inherit. And so some of these ideas include anthropocentrism, domination, extractivism, profit, growth, 
short-termism and individualism. And that is kind of a laundry list of words, but they're all so important in their own ways. I think especially anthropocentrism is this core idea that is upholding our capitalist colonized system. So anthropocentrism is basically the notion that humanity is separate from nature, which if you think about it is a pretty absurd idea because humans in the end are animals and they are part of the world. They are part of nature. But this idea was specifically mobilized in the advent of capitalism 500 years ago, and it was meant to basically strip nature of all life, of all meaning. So it just became inert matter. And this really conflicted with decades or even centuries of animist belief, which viewed humans as inextricably bound up in the web of life. But once nature was divorced from society, it legitimized its domination and extraction. But as we're seeing now with climate and ecological breakdown, this idea is so corrosive and it's a, just a brazen lie. Humans have always been part of nature. And I think about you know the radical paradigm shift that we need to engender in the long term. It has to be re-nesting humanity within nature. Uh, Grace, I don't know if you maybe want to speak to that idea. Please jump in if you want to. Happily, I think that is so interconnected with the theories around the youth climate movement, whether they're explicitly articulated or not, is how we no longer see the world in this commodified way. And as a result, you see a large movement looking towards local and indigenous knowledge systems because there's a large push being like, if we go back to the way that nature was viewed when people lived most harmoniously with it, which in a very simplistic way would be to say indigenous cultures. And you see this push having <laughs> more influence from indigenous voices within governments, governance and management structures. And as a result, you see like the rights to nature movement, which is so exciting and the ways that forests and rivers in Ecuador and New Zealand have the legal standing of a person. And as a result, it's used as a tool to conserve them. And mind you, you're working within anthropocentric structures, you know, law, governance, things that humans have created. However, I think it's probably the most efficient way with the tools that we currently have access to, to enable this type of conservation. Yeah, in doing so, I just find that movement really exciting because personally, a lot of the research that I do and care about is about fisheries in the Southern Ocean. And the overarching conservation body in the Southern Ocean and Antarctica called the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Living Marine Resources they're not even referred to as species. It's immediately just called resources, which Jack and Noah are making faces right now. It makes me <laughs> absolutely livid too. Because how ridiculous is that? You have you have entire ecosystems and they're boiled down to just how they can be exploited and commodified. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good example. That resource paradigm. Viewing nature as resource that can be again extracted, commodified, used for economic profit. And we have to move away from that. And like you said, if corporations can have legal personhood or if they are understood to be people under law, then why can't nature as well, right? It's just, it's possible. And it shows that these ideas, these extremist ideas are so naturalized that we don't even question them. But once we start pulling back the layers, we realize like this is completely absurd. So that's a really helpful example. 
Um, Jack, maybe you want to dive a bit into why a paradigm shift? Why, why is this kind of the theory of change that we have identified as the most powerful? Yeah. Well, I think that we've already sort of answered it in, in certain ways, but to make, to reiterate, I suppose, because paradigms lie at the bedrock of our systems, because they're so interwoven into our daily lives, the way that we see the world, the way we interact with the world, they really hold the power to unleash transformative change, the transformative, the radical change that's required to arrest climate and ecological breakdown. And I can understand that some, one might be sort of questioning of this, thinking that the way that one views the world holds the power to actually change the material world that exists. But there are, in fact, countless examples throughout, throughout history that demonstrate the power of paradigm shifts. And Grace spoke to how they underpin some of the, the lived realities that, are exist, that exist in fishing communities. But they underpin all of our lived realities. And if we are not able to shift our paradigms, then we will forever be able to, to uproot the core drivers of climate breakdown. So long as we understand nature to be separate from humans, so long as we continue to uphold some of the beliefs that underpin our current paradigm, like extractivism, the pursuit of growth over everything, short-termism, individualism, these disallow us from engaging in climate in a meaningful way, and they're totally antithetical to what we are trying to do at Climate Vanguard, which is imbue radical climate action. So, Noah, could you maybe with an example flesh out how paradigm shifts throughout history have transformed our systems and transformed the material world, transformed the way that our world fundamentally functions? Sure. So I think neoliberalism and the paradigm shift behind that is the most recent example of what a paradigm shift can look like and the real power behind it. So for our listeners out there who don't know what neoliberalism is, it's basically a new political economic system that came about in the 1980s and it supplanted the post-World War II consensus of a strong government, of a strong social safety net. And neoliberalism really prioritized a weakened state and the, the extension of market activity into all facets of life. It was about hyper-marketization and about really advancing the interests of corporations and the ultra-wealthy at the expense of the general public and the planet. And the way this came about was that in the aftermath of World War II, everyone believed that the government had to have a very strong role in dictating the economy and making sure that there was equity within, this, within society and that there was really strong social welfare policies. However, neoliberal founding fathers, I guess, like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, really believed that this was a slippery slope to what they saw as totalitarianism. And they formed what became known as the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, bringing together intellectuals from all across the world who believed in this new type of neoliberal economics. And they acknowledged that the ideas that they were talking about were on the political fringe. They were extreme in that immediate moment after World War II. However, they thought that the ideas they came up with would become actionable within a generation. It would shift from being politically impossible to politically inevitable. And the way they started to mobilize these ideas is through a network of think tanks all across the world that were really cluing up these ideas with politicians and the societal elite. They also infiltrated academia. So it started kind of to take hold 
there was a real infrastructure behind it. However, the second part of their strategy was that they had to take advantage of a crisis. At moments of crisis, new ideas can easily be implemented. And there's this very famous quote by Milton Friedman, who's perhaps the most famous neoliberal economist. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the polit politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Wow. It's, it's an amazing wow. quote. And that perfect crisis came about in the early 1970s through the oil shocks and the rising issue of stagflation, which is kind of economic jargon that we won't get into, but there was real societal turmoil. And it was at this moment that neoliberalism was able to sink its claws into the political elite. And you saw leaders like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher ride this neoliberal tidal wave into office in the 1980s and to successfully supplant the post-World War II consensus, which a couple of decades ago was completely taken for granted. It was like, we can never change this system. So this is an example of a paradigm shift because it's new thinking, it's new ideas, radical ideas, extremist ideas in the present, but they're actionable quickly by building them out through think tanks, through research organizations, and then actioning them through political circles and moments of crisis. Yeah, I think that's such a great summary, Noah. Thank you for that. I think it's so interesting to take the example of that. It's important to note that this is only one example, and hopefully our listeners can start to understand through this example how ideas and paradigm shifts hold the power to catalyze actual change in the world. And I, th I think it's important to note that this is only the most recent of paradigm I, I also shifts. think it's important to note that neoliberalism was a catastrophe. And it remains a catastrophe because it's still the paradigm that we're all part of. Yeah. It was an unmitigated disaster. And re remains, it re remains. It remains an unmitigated, unmitigated disaster. And the fact that it's still around is just terrible because it's late stage. It's like a zombie at this point. It yeah. shouldn't be around, especially after the 2008 financial crisis and COVID. But it trudges on. Nonetheless, I think that the, the model on which neoliberalism came to be is something that we adopt in many ways. We're trying to take the neoliberal playbook in the interest, of course, of supplanting it with a new paradigm, a new radical climate paradigm, and creating some form of poetic justice if this comes to be successful. But I think that some of the some of the, the things that neoliberalism did are things that we adopt. So we are, first of all, a think tank. We're trying to develop these ideas so that they're sitting around and take advantage of moments of crisis, which are now all around us and so, so frequent with, with intensifying climate and ecological breakdown. So there seems to be an incredible opportunity within this climate crisis to take advantage of the crises and mobilize mindsets around them to have drastic societal change. I think that another key difference I want to pick up on between what the Mont Pelerin Society did and what Climate Vanguard seeks to do is that the key change agents that the Mont Pelerin Society identified were political and economic elites. However, at Climate Vanguard, we really take a different audience. We're targeting a different audience. We understand that elites, be it political or economic, have understood the climate crisis for half a century and have 
actively sought to distort that information, to suppress action, and they fundamentally do not have the eyes and ears to listen to what we are talking about. And this is in large part because they are beholden to our current paradigm. They see the world in a certain way that disallows them and, dilute and creates delusion so that they're unable to enact the solutions that are required. So at Climate Vanguard, the change agents that we really identify are the general public, are the vast swath of open-minded people within the world who are aware of climate change and are wanting to find a better way forth and build a better world, and particularly young people, because we see the power in, in young people, that young people have been at the forefront of climate ambition in the last five years or so. So I think those are some of the key differences, perhaps, um, which are important to identify between us and neoliberalism. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, like, among, let, among let's, in let's, terms of tactic, not obviously in terms of content. Let's be perfectly clear for the audience out there. Jack and I, and I, I'm assuming Grace as well, although I don't want to speak for you, Grace. You can include Grace. this one. Okay. We absolutely detest neoliberalism. It was a catastrophe for humanity, and it was a catastrophe for the planet. What we're saying basically is that we just want to adopt this playbook in order to dismantle, destroy, and supplant it with a new radical climate paradigm that works for both people and the planet. But it is very interesting to bring up these historical parallels and see how we slot in there. Yeah, I think through fleshing this example out, it, sh it hopefully becomes a little bit more clear to our listeners how our operations at Climate Vanguard are influenced by paradigm shifts and past examples of paradigm shifts. I think we've now thoroughly covered the what and the why of our theory of change. The last point, which is important to pick up the on, how. is the how. How do you do how this? How do you do this incredible task? How do we supplant our current paradigm with a new one that allows us to understand the world that needs to come to be, that allows us to put on these goggles. Climate Vanguard goggles. Climate Vanguard goggles, which will help us see what needs to be done and understand the solutions that need to come about. Well, Jack, first of all, thank you for asking that question. It's how? just absolutely essential. I'm dying to know, Noah. Okay, how? you know what? Well, I, I have some answers that I think may be helpful. I can't wait to hear. Okay. Strap in. Seatbelt's on. How do you implement a radical paradigm shift? It's a three-step process. Number one, we have to point out the failures and anomalies of the old paradigm. So as we see right now, the gap between what's being discussed around how to solve climate and ecological breakdown is vastly insufficient. And there's an increasing gap between the action that is being taken and what has to take place. So really, we're just seeing this mismatch between the necessary action. And in order to incite a paradigm shift, we have to really call out those antagonisms. Because once these cracks, these splinters in the paradigm become obvious, that's when you can begin germinating the new paradigm. So that's the first step. Number two, we have to speak loudly and with authority about the new paradigm. So we need to speak with authority about what needs to be done, what kind of world we can build and can have. And the third step is to build power. So in the neoliberal example, they build power with political elites, with the ultra-wealthy. But like Jack said, we know those people will never listen to what we have to say. So the key change agents that we have identified are young people who are already passionate about the climate crisis, who are driving forward this conversation, as well as social movements who are on the ground trying to implement the needed change. 
And we want to add directionality to emerging climate awareness and build out the ideas that are so essential. So we want to build power in these networks in order to form the public discourse around climate ecological breakdown and to really make sure this radical climate paradigm is ultimately successful. So that was a crash course on wow. how to implement a paradigm. Thank you. Thank you for answering my question of how do we build a paradigm? How do we build this new climate paradigm and um, push it out into society? I think this provides a good opportunity for us to color in a little bit how our theory of change actually impacts our operations at Climate Vanguard. Um, one such avenue is through our social media strategy. And we're lucky to have Grace here today because she actually sits on our communications team, which is in charge of developing our social media strategy. So I guess those three points in particular of the how, the pointing out the antagonism, speaking with confidence of the new paradigm and building power really filter down into our sort of content objectives. Grace, this is an opportunity if you want to jump in to discuss what you think, first of all, of our theory of change, um, whether it relates to some of the work that you've done, perhaps, in terms of, because in my mind, it sort of brings up some ideas of how it might empower some people who are dealing with various forms of eco-anxiety, and then also touch on some of the interesting ways that it intersects with our emerging social media strategy. I wouldn't be... <laughs> sitting as part of this youth climate think tank, of course, if I didn't believe what it stood for. And I think normalizing the vocabulary around this will be extremely integral into the implementation itself because you see words like paradigm shift and they can be super intimidating off the bat. You don't really know what it stands for. You don't really know what this is meant to encapsulate. But I think something that we are emphasizing so hard in the communications team is the accessibility of these concepts, our theory of change, and how we seek to implement them. Because we understand that people are coming from so many different schools of thought, academic backgrounds, socio-political backgrounds, and we just want to be able to convey our mission in an accessible and efficient way so nobody feels intimidated or belittled or like they don't have the capacity to understand what we stand for. No, I think that that emphasis on sort of um, breaking down this theory of change, because it is true that, I mean, it's taken us however long in this this podcast to discuss it. Um, and it's even more difficult to do that in very condensed social media posts. But I think it's very important to make the language very accessible and try to communicate it as clearly as possible, because it's, it's essential to getting as many people on board as possible. And I think that the theory of change also informs our social media strategy in more particular ways as well in terms of the specific tactics. So if we are to point out the antagonisms between our current paradigm and the change needed to build a habitable world, we will do things like highlight cases of climate breakdown and tie them to their root causes and demonstrate that it is this system that's caused this case of disaster. If, for instance, we are trying to speak with confidence of the new paradigm. We will create informational posts which flesh out some of the policy proposals that we're developing on our website. And relating to the third point of our theory of change, if we're trying to build out power with key change, change agents, we'll perhaps be posting quotes from radical theorists and or sort of climate legends, if you will, to sort of demonstrate our alliances and make clear how we position ourselves to get people on board. Yep, I think it's a really nice encapsulation of how the social media strategy of Climate Vanguard is really informed by our theory of change. Because we're trying to use social media 
as a vehicle to implement this paradigm shift. And again, it comes back to our key change agents. We think that young people who are really literate in the social media space can consume the content that Climate Vanguard is putting out and really help mobilize the critical mass, the social tipping point to realize this climate radical, this radical climate paradigm. So um, that about wraps it up for another episode of the Climate Vanguard podcast. We'd like to extend our thanks again to Grace for joining and for all of her amazing insights. And stay tuned for another episode.